Welcome to Coffee House. Education. We ignored it for half a century and are suffering the consequences. These are macro civilization defining trends that we took for granted. Hostages no more. The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child is by Betsy DeVos, the former education secretary. It covers the work she did before and during the administration, her difficulties with the media, unions, and the administration itself, and what can be done going forward. So as always, we will go through the contents of the book, we'll do an analysis, and then we will do a big picture. I think this one's going to be in two parts, and that being the case, we may double up on the analysis and big picture stuff. But regardless, we will talk about what's going on with this thing and the implications therefrom. So the contents. Prolonged closure. Everybody remembers that during the pandemic, that was one of the upshots of having required closures of schools all over the place, is that parents had a direct line into what was being taught in the schools, and there was kind of a collective reevaluation of how education was functioning. So this guy named Mann was apparently the architect of government schools, and he called the students our hostages. He said that students were hostages to our cause and didn't trust parents when it came to the education of children. So this is the idea that frames the book, is that we had this person structure government schools and education for, what are we, up to a century now? And we haven't fundamentally reevaluated the way that education functions in the country or the reasons it was instituted in the way that it was in the first place. So even before COVID, schools were failing. They were falling math scores, especially for the lowest performing students. They were getting worse over time. There have been no real improvement since 2012. The U.S. spends 37% more than other countries on average on their students, and yet they are not in the top 10 globally on any subject. So for this author and the former Secretary of Education, education freedom is the goal. That is the number one response to the failings in the education system. And recently, and this is pointed out by the author, there was that school union letter that was calling parents domestic terrorists for taking issue with some of the aspects of the curricula that were, uh, we'll say, not flattering. <laughs> but also just blatantly propagandistic. The opportunity of a lifetime. So 2016, there was the election, of course, and the people being considered for that was a short list for the education secretary. Now, when DeVos spoke with Trump, or at least evaluated what his, his positions were when it came to education, he indicated that he didn't like how the education system was built for adults rather than kids. And he had promised, as part of his campaign, to make block grants for school choice and support, in general, the idea of school choice and freedom in that area. This is the beginning of the interests of Betsy DeVos in potentially taking this position. Her background, she's from, her family's from the Netherlands. They built a business, her father primarily, but he would work nights and Saturdays, although her mother would insist on eating dinner together. And I thought this was a, a nice means of maintaining kind of that, that family cohesion. And it would even be if uh, the father came home very late at like nine o'clock or something like that, they would wait and eat together. But so initially it was a die-cast machinery business. And then later they built the sun visors with a mirror and lights in cars. This is around 1972, so this was a, a brand new thing at the time, and they started scaling up that business from there. There was one event that was recounted that I thought was uh, wonderful. 
At some point, this uh, 12-year-old Betsy DeVos declared in front of her parents that she would never pick blueberries. This was a kind of vocation that was common in the area, but it looked uh, very undesirable. You know, it was often in poor weather conditions. It was backbreaking. It was terrible work. And so she just proclaimed in front of her family that she will never pick blueberries. And so soon thereafter, of course, her father arranged to have her pick blueberries for two weeks straight to kind of knock that right out of that sentiment right out of her, to insist that any kind of honest work is, is worth it and shouldn't be derided or degraded. So her father from this point, for about seven years, he worked constantly at that grueling schedule building this business. In October 1972, he didn't feel well, and it turned out he had a heart attack at age 41. He had to wait four months to go back to work, and the company became profitable for the first time, but he resolved to spend more time with his family after this point. So the family went on a trip to Europe, where they learned the effects of communism firsthand. And I love this idea of of trips that are more edifying and have a point to them as opposed to just to get away or something like that, so I, I love that. But her father, over this time, was deeply committed to community. It was something he was very involved in. At peak, the business had about 5,000 employees. There would even be a plane. I think I I read this part right. There was even a plane to take employees to Detroit to make it easier for them to commute to uh, to work. There was a care and share program that was initiated there that was for giving to nonprofits. So that was something early on to support the community in general. But then when he was in his 60s, he was found on an elevator. He had entered an elevator alone, and then he was later found dead on the elevator. So the family thereafter sold the corporation. They gave about $80 million of the proceeds to employees, and they took a significant amount for the family that they, they used thereafter. The un-American education system. So when she was uh, deciding with her husband, trying to determine, okay, where are my kids going to go? And she was getting to learn kind of the education system in more oblique ways. But there's this one place called the Potter's House School. And it was something they didn't end up using. They ended up putting their kid in a different school. But in learning about this school, it gave her a lot of insight into the way education can work. So the Potter's House School was structured so that uh, students, the parents of students, could pay what they could. They didn't have a, a set tuition they had to pay. Just any given parent paid what they could. And uh, her family, DeVos's family, actually supported a number of students, the tuition of a number of students in that school. But she was emphatic at the time that it, the parents of somebody shouldn't determine where they can go in the country. Now, when her and her husband, even, when they were coming up in school, they were disinterested in it. They didn't like the sitting in class and staring up at the front part. And that would inform her through the rest of her life on the ideas of what school can be, is to not be this this rote, overly structured kind of learning experience. So it was in the late 70s, uh, during the Carter administration, he created the Department of Education. And the point was to gain the support of the unions at the time, the unions in the education realm, the teachers' unions. And at the time, many questioned whether this was a good move. A lot of people in the administration said it would take away from the ability of local educators uh, to be able to manage in the right way uh, their educational goals and uh, the best terms for students. But it garnered Carter the first ever NEA endorsement by creating the Department of Education. And this is 1979. 
So then after that, you have this kind of setup where you have these unions that have a particular interest and politicians that have a particular interest and charter schools became the thing that were set up in opposition to that interest because it was a competitive structure uh, relative to these schools. And DeVos uh, developed this American Federation for Children, and I looked at the website, but uh, I haven't learned much about this particular organization. And if it comes up more, you know, that can be something that I'll talk about more. The real debate, though, isn't Betsy DeVos, and this is about her... entry into the administration. It was actually Jeb Bush that was the one. She supported Bush during his uh, during the election, but he was the one that was kind of the champion of what she had been trying to do in education. But she was a big fan of what Bush had been able to do in Florida. He moved Florida from the bottom to the top in education. He had a lot more charter schools. The critics of the move all along the way said it would destroy public schools, but it overall increased competition and created just a general improvement in education standards and performance. She said that Trump, when she met with him, was focused a lot on vocational education. You know, he has a big construction business, so it makes sense. But the final candidates were between her and Michelle Rhee. But the whole process, she goes through this process of of what it took to actually get into office, even having been selected already. But she needed security clearance because she's technically in line for the presidency. She's 16th in line of succession, but still she's in the line. But the teachers' unions, they wanted power. That was the whole point, and they would stand in the way of any kind of an idea of school choice. They try to nip those things in the bud. The teachers' unions give about $66 million in political donations, and more than 90% of that goes to Democrats. And between 2018 and 2020, the contributions doubled, and they vastly disproportionately support just one party. And what they're really doing is buying protection for their monopoly on education. They don't want to lose that monopoly. She said that she met with Elizabeth Warren, who was one of the coldest people that she had ever met, which seems about right. She recounted uh, these murder boards that they had to go through when it came to getting ready for Senate hearings for confirmation. And that just meant that they would have a a bunch of the the toughest people uh, give you questions as if you were in a Senate hearing. And you'd sit in there for hours going over every possible question that could come up and trying to brainstorm the proper answers to all these questions. But one of the things, and this is where you get some of the idea of the friction between DeVos and likely a lot of the other members of the administration and the administration itself... (laughs) Because the transition team didn't communicate well with the press related to who DeVos was and what they were going to be trying to accomplish. And a lot of things that you'll see that will come up repeatedly is that DeVos was, thought it was important to have the long-term support of the, the people, of parents and of students. So it was important to get these messages out in the right way and do it over the course of a period of time that you're able to garner that support before you just introduce something. And so this is one of the problems of that is that during this confirmation process, uh, you know, in anticipation of it and getting ready for it, she was muzzled. She wasn't able to go out and talk to the press or let people know who she was or what she was about. And I vaguely remember this, that I had no idea who this person was. And then suddenly she was already in there. But the Trump transition team didn't do a good job of communicating with the press about who she was or what she stood for. And then along the same lines of trying to deal with the such a a weird administrative situation is that she had, there were formerly on the other side, even members of the house and Senate who were very supportive, like Cory Booker, who had previously showed a lot of support for school choice measures now just flipping and being completely against charter schools. And the course of his flipping on that topic took less than a year. It was eight months between the time that she had talked to him 
and he was an advocate for it uh, versus the time that she heard him you know speaking to, as part of the confirmation hearings in opposition to charter schools so then she's you know knee deep in the swamp and on her second day she was going to visit a school and there were protesters there uh, she was almost pushed down the stairs she was surprised by the resistance of a lot of the republicans to just federalism in general and this is another thing that I think people have to realize is that it really is in the interests of the government, you know, whatever party you're a member of, it's in the interests of the government to increase the government, to increase the spending, to have more employees, to have more departments, to have more regulations, even if you ideologically are against those things because of the damage it does and the costs that it places on taxpayers, it's still within your interest as part of the government to be bigger. So she found that resistance even amongst Republicans. Uh, but then early on, she was meeting with employees, going around to meet with employees. And this is one of the funniest things in the book. Is she was talking about how the bureaucracy, how deeply embedded it is. And it was just a matter of the length of time that one had worked there as opposed to, you know, their performance or, or the good ideas they came up with or anything like that. So she went in to go talk to somebody and found that the receptionists were teleworking. <laughs> So uh, the person who was supposed to be there to receive people was actually at home doing the work of receiving people from home. And then there was another instance where she just wanted to move a bunch of these books that weren't being used for anything. She wanted to move them to another place. And the guy with the keys to the books was only there two days a week. And it was on the opposite days of the guy who would be there to move the books. So it was described as the blob. It exists to survive and devour. That's all it's there for. And the department websites were a mess. There were a hundred different servers supporting many, many different pages when it all should have been, you know, condensed into a, a very clean, straightforward message from one department. But at one point, she they had deleted a, a bunch of pages because they were redundant or outdated or whatever. And so the news stories that came out were about how she had disappeared the IDEA. In reality, they were just replacing the website uh, with another website that explained how the IDEA worked. But so the headlines would say that he was, she was trying to erase students with disabilities and that kind of thing. And then another time, the whole budget leaked while it was being debated. And, and so they just the media would take the worst things out of it to be able to use it as attack against the administration. But it took a whole year to just get the senior staff confirmed. So that's a quarter of the time that you are in office just trying to get senior staff. And there were a number of things that they had to run into that uh, more of these will come up later, but the, these letters that Obama would just issue and he would send to these departments and say, okay, well, rather than the Congress or somebody else writing a law, I'm just writing this letter. This is how you have to interpret the law that's on the books, and I'm dramatically changing the way that it's being interpreted. So this one in particular was about Title IX and um, the kinds of access that trans people have to have to bathrooms. So there was a bunch of argument over this, and the AG, I think Sessions at the time, debated this with DeVos in front of Trump specifically, and she was saying that it was important to have support from public opinion. We have to get out there with the information ahead of time and get it out a lot so that there is a better understanding of what's going on and more support for it before we do anything. But Sessions just wanted to do it like a Band-Aid. He just wanted to rip it off and move on. And I think in this case, uh, maybe she got a little bit of a delay, but uh, Sessions won out in the end, and it did just get torn off. She would win on a later one. A lot of things that would happen repeatedly is that she'd go to places, and there would be this automatic vitriol that she would experience just for being part of this administration at this particular time. And then there was the Charlottesville attack, and she said that after Charlottesville, she really considered quitting. 
And there's a lot to talk about related to this and the responses within the administration to a lot of the scandals that would be amplified in the media thereafter. The schools of the future are here today is the next chapter, and it specifically talks about the kinds of schools that are already around that need to be amplified out in the population. So she would, as the secretary, she would get thousands of threats, and many of them credible, that would have to be acted upon and people have to be arrested. She went to one school, the KCA, it was part of her Rethink School Tour, where she was going to a bunch of these special schools all over the country, and uh, some of them, they had like fluid grades, and they would have short weeks where you'd have a couple of days where you you're, you would work at home, and then a few days that you'd work, you know, on site. You had some schools that were run by teachers entirely, so you, and the board was made up of teachers and parents. There was one school that was called Hope, and it was specifically for addicts. So this would cater specifically to kids that are coming off of addiction of some kind of a drug. She mentioned the the movie Waiting for Superman, uh, which was about charter schools and was a big hit, but apparently didn't do enough to endear the general public to charter schools. But the point is that charter schools are free from unions. They don't have the same kind of restraints because of union involvement. The first charter school was from uh, 1992 was the first one that was made. There are about a million students in the country that are on waiting lists for these things. And there's a reason for that. Charter schools in the United States receive 33% less funding than public schools, but they do more with less money when it comes to the performance of their students. In New York, the charter schools are 25% more cost-effective, and in some places, 50% more cost-effective than public schools. And the charter schools are open to all students. You know, it's not like other private schools that can restrict that. She talks at this point about uh, her husband's aviation school and some of the things that he had to go through to make that and the way that's structured. So there are things like, first they deal with having to be a good person. They want to make sure you're of good moral character. But when you graduate from the school, you graduate with a pilot license. And there were classes that helped you build an airplane and learn to fly. And then when you, once you got out, you were, you were an actual pilot. This school was started in 2010, but it sounded really, really cool. Places like Acton Academy and other places that have uh, very student-directed curricula and Design 39 where students were more driven to real-world projects that they were more involved in. And the measure, and this is something this is something that she would bring up repeatedly, is that mastery is the measure of the student's performance as opposed to just plain grades or just accelerating through different tests or whatever. It would be a matter of what is your level of mastery in this subject. There was the I Promise School, which did incredible things, but it was public in name only. It was effectively a charter school, but the unions wouldn't let it be called that or publicized as that. There were the Thales Academy schools where they have very serious study of Western history. They would talk about the Romans and the Greeks and all the foundations of Western civilization. The Cristo Rey School, where you work and give your earnings to the school. So the point is that public schools are not just supposed to treat students the same, but they're supposed to create the same person out of the students that they receive. They are there to perpetuate the machine. So her response to this is to try to have many more of the charter schools, the kinds of schools that we described beforehand, that were much more creative in their ability to educate students and accomplished a lot more with a lot less. Okay, moving on to the analysis. So that was just part one of this. We'll do about five or six chapters per part. 
But it was just, as I was going through, there's so much to actually talk about. It's very difficult to try to do it all in one episode. So first, uh, there's deep insight into the education system. DeVos has worked in this space for a long time. There's a strain of sincerity that goes through the whole book when it comes to talking about education in general. It's just one of those people who seems like they're absolutely sincere about how interested and how important this thing is to them. It still has, because it's a biography, it still has those kind of haha, I was right moments. You know, everybody writing a biography gets to do that. They get to edit out the times when they weren't right and just set up all the moments where they were. So it seems like they're supernaturally correct on everything. But it is so important to understand the decades of decline and the interests at play that are up against each other. You know, the next half century is going to be a war against the institutions we let get out of hand over the last half century. Unions have interests and incentives, politicians have interests and incentives, and students have the least amount of power and influence in all this political calculus. So that's why parents must be the stewards of the system and giving the freedom to the parents in many different ways, and there are many details to that. But giving that to the parents is a much more effective way to make sure they are within that stewardship rather than just subject to whatever the unions and politicians want to do. There's just so many possibilities in education. So big picture wise, what is education supposed to do? It's not a piggy bank for union bosses and a means to launder political contributions to Democrats. It's also not a hippie find yourself simulator. But there are so many millions of other things that education likely does and has done historically. It's It makes you deal with peers. It makes you understand how to deal with authority. Having deadlines and failure and successes and expectations put upon you and expectations you put on others. Doing something you don't want to do to be able to accomplish something more worth it in the long run. I mean, there's so many things that we don't know that we might be missing without an education system structured in the right way that it it is worrisome to just toss it out. That comes more in the second half is like her prescriptions for how this all should function. But I really think, just like we were talking about, uh, the archaeology of mind and how there are things that we think we want to get rid of that we might not want to get rid of. We might just want to curate the best possible balance of the positive and negative things to create the most balanced and thoughtful and intelligent and healthy people that we can. So anyway, that was uh, the part one of hostage hostages no more and so we'll have a second part we'll probably do a book in between before we do the second part of that one or we might not (laughs) we might do a discussion and we might not but we shall see and i hope all is well and i will see you on the next one all right bye